Hello and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon here with my friend and Chavruta Yardena Asband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Megillah, daf tet vav, page 16. So whether or not you've been paying attention, the Gemara here has kind of been, been giving us snapshots of the personalities who appear in the Megillah. We didn't talk so much about Achashverosh, but we did talk about Vashti, and we did talk about Esther, and now we have really a snapshot of Mordechai and Haman, and the interlude that I think anybody who knows the Megillah, meaning Megillah at Esther, knows about how Haman insisted that everybody bow down, and Mordechai refuses to bow down, but all of that is preceded, of course, by the, or, I'm sorry, the the way the Megillah itself presents the relation the dynamic between them is this very fraught thing, and of course we also have the discussion of where Achishverot has you know the man that he wishes to honor, and Haman thinks it's going to be himself, and of course then it turns out to be Mordechai. So the Argamaya here takes that story and elaborates on it to a great. In, in great detail, which is what Midrash does. I don't think it's unusual in that regard, but it, it goes far beyond anything that I think we might have put together from reading the Megillah, certainly from what I knew both as a child and, and on up, you know, as an adult. Um, so Haman goes to try to, you know, to find Mordechai. He has these orders, right? So Haman takes the clothing, meaning these fine, fine apparel and the horse that he's going to you know, provide for Mordechai to be honored by the king. And then, so that that's a citation from the Megillah, it's in Hebrew. Then the Gemara switches to Aramaic. So he goes out, Haman goes out, and he finds Mordechai with the sages, Rabbanan, who are sitting with him. And and he's Dealing is demonstrating for them the it says the halachas of the handful, and this is about offering karbanot. Okay, this is a sidebar completely, um, as far as we're concerned, meaning as far as this discussion is concerned. But the point is that it goes on to say that Mordechai sees him coming. Um, um it, it, Mordechai sees him coming and he's holding the horse's reins, meaning Haman's holding the horse's reins, and Mordechai gets frightened. And he says, oh, my goodness, this Haman is coming to kill me, right? And they t- and he tells everybody, um, go away from me. Go away so that you don't get burnt from the coals, meaning don't you get hurt from me as well, like from, from proximity to me as Haman's coming after me. And what does he do? Ata... Um, Mordechai stands up, he wraps himself, this means he wraps himself in his talit, and he stands up to pray, which seems to be like, on the one hand, um, logical, if he's afraid for his life, he's going to you know, take some moment to pray to God, and on the other hand, it's going to be such a pinnacle of chutzpah to, to Haman. But of course, none of this is what has happened because the tables are completely different right now. You know, the, the tables have turned between the two of them. Mordechai doesn't know it yet. Haman comes and he waits, according to this story here in the Gemara's rendition of what happened to the Megillah. Haman comes over where Mordechai is praying and he waits until Mordechai finishes. And then in the interim, meaning while he's waiting for him to finish, so I, I have to wonder, you know, was Mordechai's um, kavana so 
so intent that he was lost in it and he kept going for as long as he needed, or did he keep going as long as he needed because I'm going to sitting there waiting? Um, Haman says to the rest of Chazal, you know, what were you doing? So they explain what they were talking about, that this was relevant to the to the Karbanot in the in the in the Beit HaMikdash, that is not their reality anymore, right? And he, Haman, bemoaned the fact that, you know, because of all of this, that they've been, all of their discussion, the temple and so on, um, he is now, now poor Haman is suffering because he had pledged to destroy the Jewish people, and instead he has to do this honoring thing of Mordechai. Mordechai finishes praying. He says to Haman, he says, Amarle, Russia, you wicked person, he says, when a slave buys a property, who who owns the slave and who owns the property? Um, meaning, how? because he's, he's saying to Haman, how do you think that you can, it's a little bit of a, of a obscure line. He's saying, how can you think that um, you own me I once owned you. Now, this by itself is difficult, but I want to. I'm going to set it aside in the interest of getting to what I think is the meat of the story. I think that line is worth probing. We're going to see the same formulation show up again. kum mane. Haman says, "Stand up, put on these clothes, put on this clothing, or and ride on the horse." malka, because the king wants you to do so. Meaning. This is the will of the king. Haman has to show up and give honor to Mordechai. He says, I, I can't do that until I go to the bathhouse. Bevane here is the bathhouse. He's got to trim his hair. He says, Because it's not appropriate. It's not, it's not proper manners or etiquette to use the king's clothing you know, dressed as I am. Remember, he's been sitting in sackcloth at the gate. Um, of course, he's also delaying the whole procedure. I have to assume that in this rendition, Mordechai still doesn't believe that this is an, a serious honor, right? I'm sure he still thinks that Haman has something up his sleeve. Okay, while of this is going on, and of course, it's fascinating to think that there's a back at the palace opportunity here because there's no sending of messengers that we know of between, you know, in this in this interim time. But the Gemara says, Shadara Esther, Vane. So Esther sends messages. Again, I it's not clear how she knows that this is what's going on. And they close all the bathhouses. The and all the shops of the craftsmen craftsmen, meaning which is going to then include the people like the barbers and so on who might help spruce Mordechai's, spruce up Mordechai's appearance for his honor here. So then Haman says, okay, he'll do it, basically. He, he takes Mordechai into the bathhouse. He washes him. He takes out scissors, that's Zuza. He goes through everything. He takes his scissors from his own home. He trims Mordechai's hair. And and while he's doing so, he sighs. So Mordechai says to him, why are you sighing? Meaning, 
He says, the person who the king had put above all others, meaning because he's the vizier, the grand vizier of the of the palace, I'm now going to be a, you know, a bathhouse uh, attendant and a barber. Amarle, Russia. So Mordechai again says, I'm your wicked person. Weren't you a barber in the village of Khartoum? The implication is that they have this long, long history that is not anything that we've really encountered yet. And also that it's certainly not present in the Megillah, right? Tana Haman Sapar Shokafar Katsumaya Asrimushtaim Shana. It says that um he was the the Haman was the barber of the village in Khartoum for twenty-two years. Which is again a whole history that we don't know about. So Haman trims Akashver um Mordechai's hair. Haman dresses Mordechai in the royal garments. sak So Haman then says to him, get up and ride, meaning get on the horse. He says, I can't do it. Mordechai says, I can't do it. I'm so weak from fasting because he's been, fa remember, he's been fasting and sitting in sackcloth at the gate. So that Haman bends down and stoops before Mordechai. And then while he's kneeling down there, stooping on you know low to the ground, Mordechai um, is supposed to right climb up on him to get onto the horse, and as he does so, he kicks him. And then Haman says to him, "Don't you have a verse? Don't you have a, a text that says, uh, when your enemy falls, do not rejoice." Right, do not rejoice when your enemy falls. And and of course, he's quoting Haman here is knowledgeable of Tanakh, right? He's quoting from Mishlei, Kavdalet, um, Yud Zayin, um, the book of Proverbs 24, 17. So that yeah, that's true. We have that passage, but it's really about Jews. If your enemy of a Jewish person falls, but with regard to you, meaning you, the wicked person, it says, and you will dread tread upon the high places, meaning we're supposed to walk upon those who are wicked. And then, of course, the, we've got the ongoing analysis or presentation of the Megillah, which is what, Mordecai, what Haman pro proclaims before Mordechai as they parade through the streets. He have an akid va'azil bishvila deve Haman so as they take, as Haman takes Mordechai along the streets, namely the same street now where Haman's house is, Haman's daughter, whom we have never encountered before, right, is standing on the roof. She sees everything, and she assumes that the person riding um, on the horse, she thinks it's going to be her father. And she assumes the person leading the horse is Mordechai. And so she takes the chamber pot, right? This is before indoor plumbing. She takes the chamber pot and it's a full one. And she dumps the whole of it onto the head of the person leading the horse, who of course is her father. And then he, of course, is totally upset. He looks up at her and then of course he sees that's her father. And then she falls from the roof to the ground and she dies. 
Okay, so all of this is like this, again, there's, I, I'm sure, I would be very eager to go delve into the sources and the motivations, you know, behind the Chazal's uh, presentation of all of this story in this way. Behind so then this goes back to the story of Mordechai returns to the gate. And then, I mean, the Rav Sheshit says he, was, he returns to his sackcloth and fasting. I mean, the fact that he has been honored in this way does not diminish his concern for the Jewish people as a whole. Oh, so there we've got a little bit of an explanation. Haman goes back to, excuse me, goes back to his house in in mourning and with his head cover covered. So the idea here is that mourning is because his daughter has died. We have an explanation for that mourning and his head covered. Now, Chafuli Rosh um, becomes clear because, well, he's just had, he's just had, um, you know, this chamber pot, to put it delicately, tossed on his head. Um, and the Gemara then goes on to, you know, say all of this to Zeresh, to his wife, and so on. But the point is that, like, this, the the reluctance, I, the part I think that I think is most fascinating here is the reluctance of Mordechai to accept the honor. Um, I think he is suspicious. I think that there is no, he doesn't get a letter from the king um, saying, now you're going to receive this honor from me. You know, let's do it with pomp and circumstance. According to the Megillah, um, I would say that part is just kind of left out. And you might say, well, you don't need to know that because obviously they're always sending messages and they're always sending edicts and so on. So of course, Mordecai would have been told, but in this rendition, meaning the Gemara's rendition of how, how it happened, the comeuppance to Haman, the switch in, um, in the place of honor, right, which is inherent in the fact that Haman is leading Mordecai on the horse, um, is is inherent, right? That's the text of the Megillah, but it's taken into such a, into a much more elaborate detail in the fact that Haman is now grooming Mordechai, right? And Haman gets the chamber pot on his head, which had been reserved for Mordechai by his own daughter, no less, right? The fact that she is um, then, you know, killed in this whole story is presumably because he himself is Ba'avel. The I, I'm guessing that Chazal did not like the idea that he would have been in mourning simply because of the change of position of of power or honor. It's not really power, it is honor. Um, and on the other hand, I think that's exactly who Haman is from upshot level, from the plain sense of the text. I don't think we need to embellish it to this degree to understand you know, how how um, Topsy turvy. This has ha- this experience has been in in a as I said in a comeuppance kind of way for Haman and of course also for Mordechai. And I really very much appreciate the Gemara's uh, presentation of this. That exactly after all of this honor and all of this crazy story, we don't really see Mordechai's reaction to the daughter in the chamber pot, but he goes right back to praying for Bnei Israel, to make sure that they are saved, to do everything that he can, or or to sit there in his sackcloth and his own mourning and his own calling out to God. Because as much as he's had this weird interlude of being honored, it doesn't change the facts on the ground. Not yet. That's going to take Esther. And with that, Yordana, I'm going to hand it over to you. I know you're going to talk about Esther. So I think it's interesting how there's a whole piece of the Megillah that's about, you know, Fohu, that everything that starts out one way switches and, you know, the fate of everybody is reversed. Everything's reversed in the Megillah. 
And this elaboration of the story, you know, creating this whole backstory, um, you know, I think is in a way sort of really drawing out the Vinaha Fohu, right? It's really trying to show us every single piece like that, you know, Mordechai goes from sackcloth to being dressed in finery. Uh, Haman goes from, you know, being, um, uh, you know, in power to then, you know, he's sort of, you know, disgusting, you know, full of, uh, you know, basically garbage at the end. Um, but I think that last point that you also made, you know, that sort of the story really isn't over from there. You know, I wonder if part of the reason why the Megillah wants to emphasize that is this still is early on and we still have a lot of other action. This is only Perak Vav. Um, there's still, you know, four more Prakim of the Megillah to get to. And I think in a way the Megillah wants to emphasize, yes, we're starting to see the beginnings, but it 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 wasn't still promised yet. And I think that's why it sort of ends with this idea that Mordechai is now again in sackcloth, you know, still waiting to see what's going to happen. Um, I'm going to move on to another piece of the Gemara here, which is the Gemara basically digresses um, and gets into a whole discussion about Yosef and his brothers, right? It basically wants to talk about this whole episode uh, with Yosef and his brothers. Um, and um, it, it, it starts off by basically, uh, you know, going through a um, pasuk that a little bit relates to the Megillah uh, itself, right? So it's quoting a pasuk in Bereshi chapter 45, verse 22. It says, Right? That he gave each man changes of clothing, um, but to Binyamin, he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of clothing. And so I think here what's relating is it's the idea of somebody getting a new new clothing and things like that. Um, and then the Gemara is going to spend a pretty significant amount of time uh, sort of going through pieces of the story about Yosef um, and Binyamin. And I think this is interesting, and many of our co-learners may know this, but I think it's worth talking about a little bit, that there's a lot of parallels between the stories of Esther and Yosef. Um, and, you know, this isn't something new. The Mepharshim talk about it. Um, you know, they're both stories that take place in exile. Both Yosef and Esther are people who come into positions of power uh, with a foreign ruler in exile. Both of them come from Rachel, right? They're, you know, Yosef is a direct child of Rachel. Esther is from the tribe of Binyamin. Um, there's also not a lot of seeing Hashem in this story, right? In Megillat Esther, we actually don't see Yad Hashem at all, right? We don't see Hashem's name even mentioned. Um, and in the story of Yosef, interestingly, which takes place over about 13 Prakim, God only speaks to somebody uh, one one time, um, ex- you know, sort of explicitly. We don't, unlike the stories of Avraham and, ya- and Yitzchak and Yaakov, where there's a lot of conversing between God and, the, and those Avot, we don't see that in the story of Yosef. And also both of them sort of end in a way, like, is it really a happy ending? Like at the end of the day with Yosef, you know, the children of Yaakov still end up in Egypt. And with, um, and with Esther, you know, what, what's, what's the end of the story? I mean, they're still sort of being ruled by a foreign, uh, by a foreign leader. Um, and, you know, there's also um, many of the Mepharshim. And again, this is something that people can look up on their own. I don't have time to go through all this. There's a lot of textual uh, parallels between the two. Like we see many of the same um, uh, psukim, right? Like Yaakov tears his clothing when he hears that Yosef was, you know, supposedly killed, Mordechai tears his clothing. Yosef is described as Yifat Torah, Yifat Mara, 
And Esther is described as Yufat Toar and Yufat Mara. Um, so I'm not going to go through all, but there's many, many parallels uh, between the languages of the story themselves as well. Um, and uh, even with Yosef and Esther, you know, they're both described as sort of having this Yufat Mara, Yufat Toar and Yufat Mara. They're both, they both have different names, right? Yosef is given the name Safat Paneach, and Esther is also known as Hadassah. Um, and also there's a whole thing of sort of like hiding your identity, um, right? And so here, the piece of the story that uh, the Gemara is going to want to talk about is when he sort of finally reveals himself to his brothers. And so, uh, you know, it's interesting that the Gemara sort of takes this little uh, break to talk about the story of Yosef. But it really makes sense if you know sort of that there's a lot of parallels between the stories of Yosef and uh, Esther. So the question here that they're starting with is, and it's a great question, right? Is it possible that the, 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 the thing from which the righteous man had suffered, right? What was it that Yaakov showed favoritism to Yosef, right? He gave him the ketonet hapasim, the, the colored coat, you know, and he does the same thing now, Yosef, to Binyamin. Right, which is fascinating. Now we can ask that question also about Yaakov, right? Yitzchak favored Esav, um, and then Yaakov goes ahead and he favors one of his children, right? And so basically, the Gemara says, right? Right. So, is it possible that Yosef would do the same thing, like that he would be stumbled by this? Is literally what it means. Right, so this is a teaching here that says, "Bishfil mishkal sheisa ali meilat meilat shosif Yaakov liYosef misharachav nitgalgel hadavar viyadu avotenu mitzrayim." Right, this teaching explicitly says, because of the two sill of fine wool that Yaakov gave Yosef, right, and added to Yosef beyond what he gave the rest of the brothers. This is how this is what started this whole story and how we ended up in Egypt. In other words, it's a direct correlation between this favoritism. So the question is, why would Yosef do the same thing? And so it says, no, he wasn't showing favoritism. Rather, he had this sort of he had this intuition that a descendant was going to be destined to, to come from him, from Yosef, who would go out in front of the king wearing five royal garments. Um, and this is what it's talking about, quoting now this Pasuk Mordechai in Esther in chapter 8, verse 15, which lists five garments that he wore. So it's sort of, he creates with Binyamin what's eventually going to happen with the descendant of Binyamin, with Mordechai, uh, by by letting him have these five um, garments. And again, I think this is a way of Chazal directly linking the stories of Yosef to the story of Esther. And then it wants to go on and continue with other pieces of the story. Right, it says he fell on the uh, neck of Binyamin. This is a pasuk from Barishi, chapter 45, verse 14, except that word savare is in plural. How many necks did he actually have? Right, so here the Gemara famously answers, Amar Rebbe Elazar, um, you know, Bacha al Shnei Mikdashim Shatitin Liyob Bechal Kosha Binyamin Vatitin Lacharev. He was crying about the two Batei Mikdash, right? Remember, the Beit Mikdash was partially in Yehuda and partially in Binyamin. Um, and so that's what he was crying about, that they were going to be destroyed, right? Ubinyamin Bacha al Tzavarav, and Binyamin cried 
on his neck, Bachal Mishkan Shiloh. Binyamin was crying that the Mishkan in Shiloh, right, which was in um which was in the territory of Yosef, right? And that was going to be destroyed. And so again, I think part of what they're doing here uh, with this, you know, the, the previous piece about Mordechai and the clothing and here about the Batei Mikdash is they're trying to set up this story as sort of being, uh, all of this is, portent- is sort of foretelling the future of Jewish history, right? None of this is actually what happened in the present of that story, but all of this had in mind what was going to happen in the future as well. And then it goes on, right? He finally, you know, it says, and behold, your eyes see in the eyes of my brother, Benjamin. So the meaning of this is, is just like, I don't resent my brother Benjamin, who had nothing to do with my being sold. I also don't hold any resentment towards you. Kifi hamidaber alechem, right, right, because it says this this part of the pasuk, the continuation of this pasuk from chapter forty five, verse twelve, right, that it is my mouth, kifi, that speaks to you, right, kifi kainli be, just as my mouth speaks, my heart speaks, meaning what I'm actually saying is actually true, and then it goes on to say ula aviv shalach kizot asaracha marim nosim mitu mitzrayim, right, and his father he sent after ten donkeys with good things from Egypt. This is the gift that Yosef sends. Yaakov, right? My mitu mitzrayim. So they ask, what are the good things of Egypt? I'm a Rabbi Binyamin bar Yefet. And I also think it's interesting that so far we've had a lot of uh, Torah here from Rabbi Binyamin bin Yefet. That Binyamin's not a common name that we see. And the fact that this story involves Binyamin. But anyhow, I'm a Rabbi Elezar. Shlach lo yayin shadatzikainim no chahema. Right? He sent him wine because aged wine because the elderly like that. Then it goes on, right after Yaakov dies, it says that the brothers, this is from Barishi chapter 50, verse 18, the brothers went and fell down before him. In other words, the brothers get nervous. Now that Yaakov's dead, Yosuke can exact revenge. Right? So this explains the, the, the sort of the saying, when a fox is in its hour, bound down to it. In other words, there was something, it's implying there was something tricky or clever about Yosef. And now, you know, if the fox was sort of appointed to really be in charge, you have to submit yourself to it, to the fox. And so then the Gemara would say, Tala, right? Are you really going to call Yosef a, a, a fox? Um, right? Right? What was he inferior to his brothers? Right? In other words, why would you call him a fox? I don't like that they're calling him a fox. Ella ki itmar hachi itme. Right? Rather, if such a statement was stated, it was stated in this way. Right? It says, Israel bowed himself upon the head of the bed, that Yaakov bowed. And this is a pasuk from Bereshi, chapter 47, verse 31. Right? When a fox is in its hour, bow down to it. In other words, the fact that the brothers bowed to Yosef, yeah, the brothers were inferior to Yosef. So it makes sense that they did. But what they're saying is the better example is, is that Yaakov bowed down to his son. And so they said that they're trying to say that that's really where the quote was. And finally, the last piece here that they go through, right? Yosef comforts them and spoke to their heart. This is Bereshi chapter 50, verse 21. I'm a Rabbi Binyamin bar Yefet. I'm a Rabbi Eleazar. Again, we have Rabbi Binyamin. Right? This teaches that he spoke to them with words that are 
that were going to be accepted by the heart. In other words, he tried to make them not be scared of him. Uma asara neirot lo neirot. And what does he say if ten lights could not put out one light? In other words, the ten brothers weren't successful in actually killing him. How could one light actually kill the ten lights? Now, is that actually comforting? I don't know. Um, but a very, very interesting sort of tangent that the Gemara gets on. It's not specifically addressing the parallels between the story of Yosef and the story of Esther, but I think that the tangent is much better understood once we understand that there are many, many parallels between the two stories. And I think here, similarly to what was you know described uh, uh, on the other part of the daf, on Amud Aleph, of Haman and Mordechai, they're trying to give, fill in a lot of the backstory here. Um, and I wonder if this is also because in both of these stories, there's no explicit, you know, element of Hashem's driving the action. And really you're dealing with sort of people interacting with each other. And so therefore we don't really ever know what's in a person's heart. And so both in the story of Esther and both in the story of Yosef, some of the backstory, the motivations need to sort of be explained in a little bit more of an elaborate way because where the story is going is not explicit because we don't have sort of like God coming and talking to somebody and saying like, this is what's going to happen. Like we do in many other stories where God explicitly comes and says, you will be saved. This is all is going to turn out okay. And we don't have that in these stories. And so therefore I think Chazal create these very elaborate backstories to sort of fill in many of these pieces. Well, that's our DAF discussion for the day. Rink us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hydrum website. Let us know what you thought about this DAF on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.